Yo, hey everyone, welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. This is week two in our series of compilation episodes and today's show is all about food. So we hear from Dr. Hazel Wallace. We're talking about the fundamental principles of nutrition. We hear from Max Lowry, author of Two Meal Day, and he's talking to us about intermittent fasting. I chat to Dr. Rupi Orjula about culinary medicine and we also hear from Dr. Megan Rossi about all things related to gut health. I really hope that you enjoy listening to today's episode, but please remember if you have any health conditions, then you must see your own doctor before making changes to your diet. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy. So online, you are the food medic and you talk a lot about food. And I think as well as giving, you know, really delicious recipes and food inspo, you also do a lot of extensive research, which Mm. you then distill into either, you know, a blog post or a social media post. So at the moment, I feel like there is so much information out there about food. It's mad. Oh, gosh. It's like the nation is obsessed with food, you know, what we should eat, what we shouldn't eat. There's debates about, you know, veganism, keto diet, intermittent fasting, seasonal eating, superfoods, so much information that I think many people are finding it really overwhelming of just knowing like what to eat. And, you know, these shocking headlines like we're being told like these superfoods are really good for you. And then the next week we're being told like, for example, coconut oil, you know, that there was a headline about that being poisonous. And it's so confusing for people people so personally i i know the notion of like a balanced diet i just Mm. don't think is very useful for a lot of people because they've lost what balanced is no so hazel can you break it down for us can you simplify it for (laughs) us what on earth should we be eating yeah no i absolutely agree with you i think it's super confusing and the headlines say one thing the science is another thing and that changes day on day um and it's it's even more confusing because I think we're all so focused on what we shouldn't be eating and it produces this very reductionist way of looking at food and also kind of isolates lots of important foods as well. Um, I also think we focus too much on nutrients as opposed to foods. So we say like, you know, we're talking about carbs one day or fats the next day, like how much protein should you be having? And like we get bogged down on the numbers, but like in terms of real life application, unless you're like a bodybuilder or like athlete, you're not going to be weighing your carbohydrates and you don't need to be. Um, And the same thing goes to like a balanced diet or a balanced plate. I think like if we want to try summarize what that might look like, it would be, you know, palm sized portion of protein, some veggies and like a fistful of complex carbohydrates and some healthy fats. But not every meal looks like that, like a bowl of porridge doesn't look like that like unless you're having a meal that where you separate all your food so I think that's really difficult for people to understand and also going back to the science nutritional science is relatively new um and I think the key when it comes to interpreting the science is that it's interpreted from someone who's researched or well-read in that field because most of the studies and not all of them are observational so we look at people and we um, ask them to take like a food diary or a questionnaire on the foods that they've eaten but the reason that's not perfect is because lots of people can't remember what they've eaten and also we can only make links so we can only say correlations we can't say causations and one of the um, good examples of that is things like red meat consumption so you know there is a link to say that red meat causes colorectal cancer and and 
certain other conditions but also we know that people who eat a lot of red meat are probably less likely to be active eat less vegetables as a result might smoke drink alcohol those kind of things so there's lots of factors to take into consideration and when it comes to the science the science is absolutely key and i love science but the interpretation is more important so when it comes to like thinking about what should I eat and I know we're going to come on to this later but it's it's a very personal thing you know like what suits my body is very different to what suits yours and although there's a general kind of fundamentals that we need like our minerals and our vitamins and some carbohydrates and some fats and some protein the the ratios and the variation of that is so different and it it you know it depends on the type of person you are if you're male if you're female if you exercise a lot where you've come from, even your gut microbiome, everything, you know, it's, it's very variable. Mm. And how can people find out more information that's personal to them? Because do you think that it's time for us to take more responsibility perhaps for our own diets? And as you said, we're all so different. So how can what suits me suit your body or suit somebody else's? And when it comes to I guess, taking responsibility for your own um, diet. And is it worth, I don't know, I think sometimes about like, you know, with your car, you'll go Mm. and you'll get an MOT and you'll get all the information. And if you were buying a car, you'd want to know everything about it. But we don't even know things about our own insides. So is is it worth like doing, I don't know, going to a doctor and saying, I want to have a blood test to see if I'm low in iron or, you know, what can we actually do to figure out what we need? I know we've spoken about this before. Um... And I think that can lead to a slippery slope of becoming a bit more of a hypochondriac when it comes to food. And we all, we almost over pathologize normal bodily functions. And one of the things that I have a bit of a bugbear about is like this whole idea that bloating is always a negative thing or always a like a pathological process it's not always bloating is actually quite normal and sometimes you're just a bit bloated because you've had a big meal that's normal in some cases it's not normal and there's red flags that doctors would look out for if they thought it was not normal but if you just go and have a, a blood test just for the hell of it but you feel okay you probably won't find very much and then you might think well i'll go have another scan and then you're putting money in to have a full body scan you might find something that you didn't want to find or you might find something that's not harmful but it might play on your mind for the rest of your life so i think you know when it comes to just knowing what diet suits you you should be able to find that out through an element of trial and error um i imagine that like when you go for your runs you know that you can't have certain foods because they might cause like digestive upset so you've probably had an experience where that's gone terribly wrong yeah sure (laughs) definitely and there's just certain things like that like i know that if i have like a lot of greek yogurt for example i will be bloated like nine months pregnant bloated and i just know that that's something although i love it i can't have it in my diet a lot and it's Mm. the same you know with different people so i think it's really important to like tune into your body and what suits you but also when it comes to things like if you do feel like you're being you're extremely tired regardless if you're getting enough iron in your diet 100 percent go to your gp and then they can look at other things because you know tiredness could be due to a number of things could be your diet but it could be something more harmful so it's really really important that we don't just poo poo it and think oh but i'm getting loads of iron or red meat or whatever Hmm. yeah it is confusing and as you said we've talked about it before i'm somebody who's very sensitive to caffeine (laughs) so oh my goodness if i have coffee it's like 
it's like rocket fuel for me and I can't seem to yeah I just don't have it anymore ever but I know other people that you know they can have a couple of cups mm. a, a cups of coffee or they're used to it or whatever so I do think um as you said doing trial and error um and I think as you said listening to and like looking I guess at your own body and how it reacts so when you said about the bloating I think sometimes people who are very maybe they're quite I don't know if they're fussy but people that are quite sensitive about like what they eat they don't want to change it Mm. so often people will say like oh if they are tired or if they've got really bad skin for example they just want to like what face wash can I use what cream can I use what what they'll ask me what moisturizer do you use what makeup and they want to know more about what's going on the skin but they don't really want to hear like oh maybe like Uh, dairy or maybe if it's a certain food that doesn't suit them they don't want to look at their diet they just want to kind of go no 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 it's not that it it, you know just give me a cream to put on or something yeah and often unless it's something that's like to do with digesting a food or it's happened straight after a meal we don't really think that diet could be the cause of something when now like you know 70% of the diseases that we die of worldwide are lifestyle related and a huge component of that is diet so what we put in our plate and in some cases what we put on our plate three times a day if we're lucky it could be contributing to better health but it could be contributing to poor health so it's really important that we talk about it um but again coming back to the whole thing that like different people thrive off you know different types of diets there's like populations in japan who are known for like you know incredible longevity and they have really high carbohydrate diets but then we're always told you know the mediterranean diet which is like lots of olive oils and nuts and seeds is the best kind of diet so really it you know it depends Mm. and although that's not the perfect answer there's no perfect diet yeah and I think as you just said about those two different places I know when people talk about um yeah I guess different groups and populations they'll talk about the diet but there's all the other factors that that contribute to that mm-hmm. society and how they live so there might be that you know that society might be um that population might be that the women stay at home and cook and the men work and then they have more um maybe community and they might be uh, you know religious based places where there's lots more community and people coming together there's lots of things whether how active they are you know there's so many things that can contribute to like yeah. lifelong health but i think it's really difficult isn't it to kind of figure out well how much of a part does diet play yeah that's true and it's not just what we eat but how we eat so like are you sitting down enjoying your meals are you sitting down and eating it as a family and like you said preparing foods and getting kids involved and growing your own vegetables and just having that relationship but like 100 percent living like a fast food vending machine diet which is something that i see a lot in the hospital that's not going to lead to good health and i think everyone knows that but here especially in london we're just constantly on the go that food is always like while we're on the tube or while we're picking up the kids while we're doing a million other things we don't really process what we're doing and also if you're not really chewing your food and you're just swallowing it you're probably not getting as many nutrients as if you were to sit there mindfully chew it because chewing is the first step in digestion we forget that yeah so i think that's interesting for people to take away is actually instead of just looking at like the next diet or the next superfood or the next pill actually like you said the basic fundamentals Mm. of eating prepare your food chew it sit somewhere calm enjoy the food not eating on the run eating on the go um yeah it could be just as important as like i said getting the next i don't know super pollen grain thing yeah no focus on the basics so like you know have a largely plant-based diet like you don't have to go full hog and go all plants but if you're having more plants in your diet you're going to be getting more nutrients more fiber and naturally it's going to displace any of the like less nutrient dense foods like try go to whole 
try go for whole grain foods uh, like and brown versions over the white versions and although that's kind of like something that's been hammered home to us since we've been kids the reason that people say that is because whole grains have the like everything they've got like the whole the brand the endosperm and all of the nutrients in there when you strip a, a grain of that you're removing a lot of the fiber a lot of the nutrients so if you can try go for kind of like things in their whole form it's going to be better for you get oily fish in there if you don't eat fish then try to get like uh, chia seeds flax seeds walnuts they're really rich in omega-3 which we can't make in our body we need to get it um through our food so it's like focusing on those principles like more fiber more veggies healthy fats you're gonna do good oh my gosh so much in there like that yeah. whole you know timeline journey so many things from being kicked out of boarding school to yeah. party scene and being like a nightclub host and like all of that stuff and I guess what was what I was kind of thinking when you were talking is that all of those things they can be I don't know if they were for you can be quite extreme so even oh, yeah. like I think boarding school you know yes if you were doing three sports you mm. know coaching training that, that that's structured and disciplined and then that's gone and then maybe homeschooling and then yeah nightclub scene extreme and then as you said partying entertaining like and then even maybe traveling it seems like you quite enjoy maybe extreme things would you agree yeah I mean you're 100% right uh when I do something I don't I don't do it in half measures it's not a conscious thing it just happens so when I was partying I was partying um equally when I'm hiking it's not just oh I like to go for a two-hour hike it's five days by myself in the mountain somewhere so Mm. yeah I don't know I just like pushing boundaries I guess I'm nodding along I don't know if I'm quite as extreme but I do think that I somebody who I always say I have an addictive personality Mm. and I always say like it's very fortunate for me that I never that 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 side of my personality was never drawn to I don't know alcohol or drugs or gambling because I'm similar in if I'm doing something I'm doing it I'm doing it 110% I never just dabble I'm like okay we're doing this now yes uh, so you mentioned a little bit about the two meal day and how you first discovered intermittent fasting and intermittent fasting, I think, has become very popular in in media and especially within the wellness space. I find in the last six, 12 months, obviously for you, it's been a lot longer. Mm. So can you tell us for people maybe listening who don't even know what intermittent fasting is? Can you tell us everything, what it is, who is it good for? Why is it good for us? Give it to us. So, you know, fasting just means not eating. Um, people are very afraid, afraid of the term, um, but that's all what fasting means. And intermittent fasting means incorporating periods of not eating into your day or your week. Um, with the 5-2 diet, which is very popular, it's eat normally for five days and restrict calories to 600 for two days. With um, what I do, is actually called time-restricted eating, where you do every day. And I'm aiming for roughly 16 hours every day where I'm not eating. Uh, eight of those hours, I'm asleep. The reason I developed the two meal day is because if you do focus on the time periods, people often get obsessed. They count down the hours until they can eat. They're not Mm -hmm. listening to their bodies. And for me, the benefit for intermittent fasting is just learning to listen to your body again and learning to understand what hunger actually is. And you only really realize what hunger is when you go through a few hours every day without eating. You realize perceived hunger comes and goes throughout the day. And you realize it's habit, it's routine, it's boredom, it's emotional, it's you have to have your lunch at this time, you have to have your snack at this time. So, you know, that's in a nutshell what intermittent fasting is. I think it's great for people. I think it's great for most people. um, But I think if you've got any underlying health issue, of course, then you're going to have some issues potentially, especially diabetes. 
anyone with a history of eating disorders um, and pregnant and breastfeeding women should avoid it. But essentially, it's nothing extreme. Um, for me, what's extreme is that people can't go four hours without eating and mm-hmm. crashing and feeling hangry. And this has become the social norm. Yep. But in actual fact, that is not normal. That's not how we're meant to function. And there's an initial few days which can be difficult where you go from being primarily um, fueled by the carbohydrates in food to tapping into your stored energy, which is carbohydrates and glycogen, but fat as well. Um, And that's a completely normal thing. But we kind of have to retrain our bodies to to do that and to function optimally without eating uh, every, you know, every hour. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I agree with the social conditioning aspect in, in the sense that we have been told, you know, you eat breakfast at this time or you need to constantly have snacks or you need to eat three meals a day or this time. or And I think that we obviously get used to habits, right? We're creatures of habit. We like to. And it's funny what you said then about feeling hunger, because mm. it's interesting. I, I think for a long time, you know, you don't feel hunger uh, from a lot of people on a daily basis. You don't feel hunger. No. And then it's only when real you... Real hunger. Yeah, real hunger. And I think for me... About two years ago when I first started going, you know, plant-based and I stopped eating animal products and I was kind of experimenting with, well, what can I eat? Where can I get food? What can I snack? And it's different now. You know, mm. there's so much stuff available. Yeah. But I actually was going on a long-haul flight. I hadn't really planned it that well and I hadn't ordered, pre-ordered a vegan meal. Mm. So on that flight, I basically didn't have any food. I think I had maybe some almonds. And it was like maybe 12 hours and I was hungry. And mm. I sat there and I thought, actually, it's so strange that I'd never feel hunger. And I thought, yeah. what an amazing, well, what an incredible, you know, how lucky you are if you yeah. can you know some people around the world do experience hunger of every course. day and so that's what i kind of sat with i thought you know what some people feel hunger every single day and you're not used to this feeling and yeah i think that's something to to really think about but what are the health benefits are mm. of, of intermittent fasting so for me i normally focused on the three main things that people feel on a day-to-day basis and this is yes the reason people get into it is weight loss or fat loss uh, it's effective for maintaining a calorie deficit um, effortlessly. I'll explain why in a bit. Um, the second thing is you have more energy overall. Um, and this sounds counterintuitive, but once you're tapping into your stored body fat, it's endless, the energy pretty much. I mean, I worked out that I have roughly 50,000 calories worth of energy to tap into in the form of fat. And I have a low body fat. Mm. So, you know, that's pretty much endless. You're not going to exhaust that even after a week of not eating pretty much which i'm not encouraging by the way um and then because you stop associating food with energy and this is a subconscious thing you don't notice it uh, because you're using your fat reserves you then feel less hungry overall and the combination of these three benefits i think is the reason why it's become so popular not only are you losing weight you feel less hungry and you have more energy which you know for people who have dieted i put in inverted commas yeah you know, that's unheard of um, and is actually the reason it becomes a way of life rather than a crash diet uh, when done correctly. Um, you know, the, when it comes to like the, the you know, the more um, profound health benefits, it can improve insulin sensitivity. Um, it can potentially improve gut bacteria because you're allowing your digestion to have a break. Um, it can potentially it's being looked at for reversing type 2 diabetes and things like this. But this is very early doors and that's mm. not what I focus on and that's not you know, there's still a lot more research that needs to be done. But I think the three main benefits of losing weight, having feeling less hungry and um, having more energy is a game changer. 
Okay, so you know you said dieting in in quotations. What would you say to people that say, well, intermittent fasting is a diet. It's another kind of trend or fad or diet that people are going to try. And then, you know, like people have talked, you know, a lot at the moment, a conversation around diet culture Mm. and how we should be avoiding that. And do you think that this is a diet or it's not a diet? No, well, it really depends how you do it. I mean, if you're doing the 16-8 or the 5-2, that's a very much a diet. Mm. It's restrictive. You're yeah. you're telling yourself that, um, you know, I'm not eating for 16 hours and I can't eat until this time. With the two-meal day, I try to encourage it to become a way of life. So it's not, you know, oh, I can't eat until this time. It's like, don't, you know, skip one meal. Uh, and, you know, people say that I skip breakfast. I don't actually skip breakfast. Breakfast just means breaking your fast. Mm-hmm. So I, I break my fast later. People are always like, what time do you break your fast? You know, when is it? Whenever I feel hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be 11 o'clock. It might be four o'clock in the afternoon. It really depends. So, you know, for me, it sounds really complicated, intermittent fasting. People overcomplicate it. Um, but actually, it's very simple. You just learn to eat when you're hungry. And I don't, I think that's the opposite of a diet. You know, I think that is, on one hand, we've got health professionals. You've got, you know, the English, the British, I can't remember the name of the um, exact uh, group that are encouraging this, but Britain needs to go on a diet. You know, mm-hmm. everyone needs to eat less. But on the other hand, they're saying you have to have breakfast. And like lots of people are, aren't hungry in the morning. Yeah. Um, like you said yourself just, just before, you, you kind of naturally do it. Um, and that's because it's a nor- more natural way of eating. You're someone that has probably learned to eat when they're hungry. Um, so yeah, long-winded answer, but I think it's not a fad if it's if you can incorporate it into your entire life and approach it in the right way and learn to listen to your body. Yeah. So, yeah, for me personally, I think I, as you said, I think I do intermittent fasting unintentionally sometimes, not all the time. Mm. And I've got to be honest, I I think because I get up early, so most of the time I'm up by 5.30, mm. I train in the mornings, I'll then come back, I might have something to do, take my son to school, I might then, you know, have something, an appointment, a meeting, a train, and then often I'll break my fast, if you like, at maybe 10 a.m. Yeah. Or it might be 10.30. So to me, I would count that as my breakfast, whatever that is. Mm. But yeah, I've been up since 5.30, so I don't just open my eyes, yeah. go into the kitchen and prepare food, and that's just it's not like a necessarily a conscious choice but I have had people reach out to me before especially because I run and I post that on Instagram stories saying do you run do you eat before you run so mm. do you consciously fast when you run and mm. I'm like no I'm like just get up and just go for a run right. yeah and I think but on the other side of that sometimes like if I go on holiday or if I'm staying in a hotel and I get up and there's like a really beautiful breakfast yeah, buffet I'll go and have a really big breakfast mm. or sometimes I just wake up hungry so yeah I think the intuitive point is really yeah. really important well there's this whole argument about intuitive eating um, which I agree with but I don't understand how you can intuitively eat and understand what hunger is if you're eating regularly throughout the day. Yeah. The only thing that can teach intuitive eating, in my opinion, is intermittent fasting mm. because then you actually understand what your body needs and when it needs it. Mm, and feeling hunger. Although I will say to you, Max, I'm not really sure I've got this down because there was a day a couple of weeks ago where I hadn't planned my morning very well and yeah, I hadn't eaten in the morning mm. and then I was back to back to back and it got to maybe 12.30, maybe even one and I was so hungry that I then was like, oh my gosh, I've had nothing to eat all day and I probably ate breakfast lunch and a snack all in one sitting to yeah. kind of make up for the fact that i'd missed it so yeah do you feel well, like you get people get more hungry then and eat more? so this is the thing about intermittent fasting the the theory was that if you skip breakfast you end up overcompensating later in the day and actually you end up eating more but actually they've done some at bath university uh um, James Betts has done a lot of research on this and that's just not the case um, although it feels like you're over consuming mm. overall you're still eating less mm. um, than if you were having a meal and this is 
why it's such a game changer for me is like what you're eating for me i eat two large meals and i'm really full and satisfied at the end sometimes a snack in between those two meals mm. but overall i'm still eating a bit less and you know initially it can feel like you're really going crazy but after you get used to it you know you don't have that kind of um you know you don't binge as it as it were but also it does take some more organization so yeah. especially at the beginning you have to make sure that you're breaking your your fast with quality nutrient dense foods if possible and yeah, there's a like decent a amount of it <laughs> exactly yeah. um so that's the kind of thing that you know i teach to my clients is make sure that ideally that you're bringing in some food with you that you've prepared the night before so if it does get to 11 o'clock and you are desperate then you have that rather than running into whatever convenience store there, uh, that's near you yeah awesome so when you work with your clients one-to-one if they've never heard of you know fasting before the concept or they've ever tried it what are some of their you know their initial response and what are some of the common barriers that people face when they first start making these changes firstly i wouldn't automatically recommend the two meal day intermittent fasting to every client Mm -hmm. Uh, it really depends on their goals their eating habits uh, the relationship with food Um, usually people have heard of it and have heard of me anyway so they're fairly open to it but yeah it's not a case of me having to persuade people necessarily i'll advise it if i think it's the right thing to do um i think for some people initially it's not the right thing to do because one of the issues that people have with fasting when they first start doing it is they're doing too many things at once Mm -hmm. you know they decide to start training five six times a week they're eating less meat they're cutting out alcohol um you know at the same time as not fixing their sleep and then they start you know intermittent fasting on top of these things so it's about incorporating these these principles that i talk about uh sustainably and one by one so i'd say you know the initial barriers that i come across to just to the average person who find out about what what i'm talking about is but breakfast is the most important meal of the day isn't it and aren't you so hungry and probably the biggest one is oh but i still love i love food too much you know i couldn't do that you know, I love food more than anyone. Me I, too. I grow my own vegetables. Yeah. I source from local farms. I love cooking. I love sharing it with people. And actually, I find my appreciation of food has increased because I eat less often. So when I do eat, it's more special. Um, but yeah, so there are things that people say. I think people generally are becoming more aware of it. Um, you know, the breakfast is the most important of the day. All stems from cereal companies in the mm-hmm. 1900s creating the first highly profitable processed food cereal um alongside the cereal uh, it was the kellogg brothers they were super religious and they came all these marketing techniques and and health claims like it would stop you from masturbating it would stop you from doing all yeah really yeah, i yeah. never heard that one yeah, I, yeah. Did, I have heard before that this concept of you know not conspiracy but people saying you know the breakfast is a whole uh, most important meal thing yeah was created by cereal companies mm. and also the farming industry encouraging mm. you to have your glass of milk and your yeah. your rice krispies or your cornflakes and yeah i guess they were they did a very very good marketing job because here we are however many people still saying yeah it. people still say it and people still believe it 
in my clinic, I was seeing people, really intelligent people, you know, having very, very restrictive diets because they'd gotten tests that had said they were intolerant to pretty much every food under the sun. And then other people were having these high-dose supplements where actually they were causing gut issues. So, you know, the organ that I saw had so much power and potential was actually being misrepresented. So I mm. moved more into social media and, yeah, so many things have come from that. Brilliant. Well, I'm, honestly, I have so many questions about this because <laughs> I think, rightly, as you said, we're going to come on to talking about, you know, the myths, the do's, the don'ts. The, because I think with gut health, although it's a good thing that it's become more popular and more mainstream and people are acknowledging the importance of it, I think what comes with that, as you said, is a lot of misinformation, a lot of contradictory and kind of extreme things as well. And I think for a lot of people, myself included, actually, you know, I've done a few episodes now with different doctors, different um uh, sleep doctor, nutrition doctor, food nutritionist. And often, you know, people have health anxiety and when they get so fed so much different information, it can actually make you like more stressed out, more worried because you're thinking, okay, I should be eating this and drinking that and taking this supplement and giving this to my child and this daily. And then you're like, oh, but the complete opposite research or, or some different science and some different evidence suggests the complete opposite and doing all these things is detrimental and it's, yeah, it's, it can be very stressful. So... As you are the gut doctor, could you please, I guess, just give us like the basics, the 101, the good, the bad and in between of gut health and what we should, I guess, be striving for, for optimum gut health? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. And I think the best way to start this off is, you know, thinking about what actually is gut health because it's in the media all the time, but what it is isn't often communicated. So gut health actually relates the functioning of our entire digestive tract, which is a tube that delivers food from entry all the way to exit. So that's that nine meter long tube. And I guess if I was to summarize all of the evidence at the moment, there's really three reasons why gut health is just so important for us. The first reason is, uh, you know, the good old saying, you are what you eat, isn't necessarily true. It's more about you are what you digest. Um, so if you're, you know, eating the most healthiest foods, but you don't have a good gut lining, then you're actually not going to extract that nutrition and absorb it into your body. So good gut health is actually really important to get the most out of the food that you're eating. The second element is the fact that along that nine meter long digestive tract lays uh, 70% of our immune system. Wow. So if we want less sick days, a stronger you know, immune system, then we need to look after our gut health. And then the third element, which has really brought the fame, I guess, to the concept of gut health, is the fact that we all have trillions of microbes, including the bacteria, that live in the lower part of our intestine. And the scientific word for that is called our gut microbiota. And it's kind of nearly considered to be an, own, like a, an organ in its own right. Mm, I've definitely listened to a lot of podcasts about this gut microbiome and about I was even at a wellness festival earlier this year where there was a company that you could essentially send off a stool sample and they would, you know, look into your microbiome and send you back all this information. And it seems that, yeah, apparently it's the like, I don't know, the, the map. We can see everything from this. Uh, also, I think, you know, listening to what you were saying then from the science element, I'm also thinking, you know, even from like a holistic approach from, you know, looking back centuries, people have always said, you know, listen to your gut or, you know, the gut is the second brain or it kind of, you know, that thing of having nervous, a nervous stomach or having butterflies or, you know, it's connected emotionally. It's connected Absolutely. to our, um, I guess it's all connected. It's more than, as you said, just you are what you eat or, or just about food and nutrition. So, so yeah, I guess what are the things that we should be striving for to, to, have good gut health and what are the red flags that our gut health needs to improve? Yeah. So firstly, just touching on the tests that you mentioned, because there are a lot of companies doing this. And I think it's really important to be aware that the research isn't quite 
there yet. Um, so it's a bit of a case of, you know, commercialization is ahead of the research. Uh, so in my research world, I certainly do um, collect poop samples. We do the analysis, but we don't just look at what bacteria are there, which is kind of what those commercial tests do. We actually look at what the bacteria are doing. And the reason why that's an important difference is because um, two very different bacteria can actually do the same functions. And similarly, the identical same bacteria can act very different in different environments. So just looking at what bacteria you have in you, you know, doesn't offer us a lot of information. In fact, it can just kind of freak some people out and go, oh, I'm missing something. I need more of this. Um, so at the moment, I don't recommend people get those tests done. Um, but I think definitely in, in the next couple of years, we will l- know a lot more from those sorts of tests. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we look after our gut? Well, I think we know that one of the most important things um, for gut health is, is our diet uh, because, you know, our bacteria in our gut relies on us um, to feed it essentially. So it's kind of like this little inner universe of potential or a little pet um, that we need to nourish. So where the evidence stands in terms of the diet is actually about being um, not restrictive. And I think a lot of people think, oh, if I need good gut health, I have to cut everything out. It's actually about being more inclusive. So what I currently um, recommend, according to the science, is that people try to get around 30 different plant-based foods in their diet a week. Now, I know that can sound really intimidating. People go, oh my God, that's impossible. But things like, you know, on your breakfast, whatever you're having, add a teaspoon of mixed seeds. You get four points there. Instead of just getting, you know, the steamed broccoli, get the multi veggie pack. And then you get another like three points. So just those small little switches, you actually can achieve that. And the reason the diversity is important is because, you know, like us, our bacteria have all different taste preferences. So each different plant-based food has slightly different nutrients for the different bacteria. And if we want a really diverse range of bacteria in our gut, which is associated with you know better weight management, um, better heart health, etc., um, better mental health also is really important, then we need to feed them that diverse range of, of food so they're, they're all happy and they can grow together. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. I've heard it described before as well as a jungle. Yeah. You know, that you've got to have a variety of all the different plants. And as you said, like you need to eat a variety as well to match that. So what would be some, I guess, yeah, red flags or things to look out for that people should, you know, kind of not be worried about, but just kind of say, okay, maybe you could improve a little bit on your gut health. Yeah. So there's many other things that are non-diet related that we know certainly can impact on our gut health. Things like stress, and that's all via that gut-brain axis. So our gut and our brain are constantly communicating communicating. Um, and that's why, as you said, you know, we get nervous, we can feel it in our belly, even though the, the nervousness is just in our head. Um, but it's bi-directional. So our gut can also talk to our brain. Um, so I think, you know, trying to manage the stress can also be really important for looking after your gut health, whether it's with things like mindfulness, exercise is also a really great one. Um, sleep is another hugely important one because like our human cells, they have a body clock, um, according to the circadian rhythm, so does our gut bacteria. So getting your seven to nine hours is also really, really important. If we were to look at diet, uh, I guess um, my research group at Kang's is currently looking at some of the food additives and looking at whether they're how they're impacting our gut bacteria, and we think they're probably not doing a lot of good for us. Um, so I guess moving away from those processed foods, which I think most of us know is probably not good for overall health anyway, but we're more trying to understand the mechanisms um, and why they're might not be as good as what we had hoped. 
Okay, cool. So yeah, lifestyle things, I think, so important. Diet, sleep, exercise, as you mentioned. What about genetics? You know, sometimes people tend to throw that word out sometimes as an excuse. It's like, oh, genetics, there's nothing you can do. Like I've even heard people say to me before, you know, when it comes to diet and exercise and all the rest of it, I hear what you're saying, Adrienne. We know what's good and bad. But at the end of the day, sometimes if your genetics are this, then that's it. So what do you think? Yeah, look, the thing that I find so empowering about our gut health is that so much is in our own hands. So unlike our genetics, we can't actually change our genes, but we can change the bacteria. And we know the bacteria do so many different things for us. So if we look after it, it can produce the right sort of vitamins and minerals. It can help with our blood sugar regulation and our appetite control. So actually, our gut microbiota is an organ we can have so much impact on, and that can improve the health and happiness of the rest of our body. Um, so I do certainly think that a lot of that power is in our hand. In saying that, there are certain conditions like inflammatory bowel disease where there is a genetic component but we also know that there's an environmental factor which twi- which kind of switches those genes on. So just because you have the genes for it doesn't necessarily mean you'll get it. Um, but there might be something in the environment, whether it's things like food additives or you know the, the pollution or something like that, which kind of switches those genes on. So there def- definitely is a combination. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think people you know, should be blaming everything on their genes. There's certainly things that people can do to improve their health. Mm, That's awesome to hear. Yeah, taking it into your own hands and feeling empowered to make changes with the knowledge that it's going to have a positive impact, I think is really powerful. What about this? I read something recently about when you, uh, if you live in an area where there's lots of woods, lots of trees, lots of grass, and you walk through that area and you breathe and you breathe through your nose, that apparently is good for the the gut. And I was kind of thinking, okay, because you're breathing through your respiratory, respiratory system but it's still affecting the gut is this true is this a myth is this a fad no we certainly do see uh that people who you know play outdoors work outdoors actually do tend to have a more diverse range of gut bacteria in their gut which remember is associated with better overall health and the thing that uh, people don't really realize is that there are microbes everywhere um in fact we actually have a skin microbiota so on our skin, we've, it's kind of like a second skin. It's invisible because you can't see the microbes of the human eye, but there are millions of microbes. And that's why, you know, there are some research suggesting that things like maybe topical probiotics may help with things like acne or, or eczema, et cetera, because it's targeting the bacteria on the skin. Um, so if you go out in the woods, there's a diverse range of different microbes there. So you're breathing them in and they're getting into your system um, and therefore adding kind of to that collective community that you're growing. And remember, it's kind of like a football team. You want to have as much diverse skills as you can inside of you. Amazing. I'm so happy that you just confirmed that for me because (laughs) essentially I walk my son through woods to school. It's only a short walk, but I told him about it. And so now when we walk through, we're always like... Inhale, inhale the microbes. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> Crazy yeah. mum, but I'm literally like, I'm glad that I wasn't just making that up. It's no, no, actually no. true. It's true. It's very true. And, you know, playing in dirt and all that sort of stuff. We, there's the um, hygiene hypothesis suggesting that, you know, because, you know, you know, 10 years, 20 years ago, we were quite actually clean with our kids. They didn't play in dirt. We were, you know, getting the spray and wipes and things like that. Their, their body wasn't actually exposed to the different microbes. And the microbes are so important for training our immune system. Remember, 70% lays along our digestive tract. So if we don't have a range of different exposures to the bacteria, particularly in the first three years of life, then our immune system isn't trained correctly and then we're at high risk of things like allergies and other autoimmune conditions and even obesity, in fact. 
Wow, okay. Yeah, I've heard a lot about this with the kind of antibacterial hand gels, the kind of, you know, wipes, as you said, for everything, washing hands, washing hands. It's actually kind of, yeah, I guess pendulumed almost too far. Yeah. And we do need, I guess, yeah, some, some dirt and some bacteria, right? Yeah. So on that, I would love to talk to you, Megan, about probiotics and prebiotics. Oh my goodness, the amount of information. <laughs> I feel like I could do a whole show just on this, but the amount of information that's out there. And I recently listened to the two scientists debating, saying that, you know, this whole prebiotic probiotic probiotic is actually just companies selling you products that are very expensive that do absolutely nothing he was arguing that they do nothing and that they're not essential at all whereas others will say everybody absolutely everywhere should be taking a daily probiotic so what's going on yeah so firstly there is so much confusion about them because they sound very similar but they're actually very different things so although there's only one letter that separates them so prebiotic p-r-e-biotic is essentially like food for the good bacteria like fertilizer Um, and the probiotic p-r-o-biotic is actually the live microbes Um, so i think there certainly has been a lot of overhype in the media about these two words. Um, but there is some evidence in some conditions. Now, when it comes to prebiotics, so the, the uh, food for the bacteria, I very, very rarely recommend people need to take a supplement. Prebiotics are in all of the plant-based foods that we eat. So that's, again, bringing back to the reason why we need that diversity, because all the different types of plant-based foods contain slightly different prebiotics. So the average person out there, I certainly would not recommend a prebiotic supplement. There are some conditions, like I said, in my clinical practice where I would recommend, but very few. And then when it comes to probiotics, actual bacteria, again, um, there isn't evidence to suggest that if you are healthy, that you should be taking one of these capsules. In fact, I'm very anti that. I think getting you know some extra microbes in your diet through fermented food is a really good idea, like kefir. It's my favorite. It takes literally two minutes to make it. They've got heaps of recipes in the book. Um, and and, you know, other sorts of fermented foods like NATO is quite a strong taste, but things like kimchi and sauerkraut and stuff. So including that sort of stuff, even uh, live yogurt. So traditional Greek yogurt contains some bacteria. Well, as yogurt was on my list, because yeah. I feel like so many yogurts now just say like pro- prebiotic, prebiotic, probiotic, and you kind of think, what is that? Do I even need it? And there's all these words about, you know, like... Activia this and like, oh no, what is it? Activia bifolaris. All these things yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. just tell you like, this is going to make your gut Cure, happy. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, what are you talking no. about? It's just, it feels like it I don't know. Yeah, I think eat them because you enjoy them and they're super tasty. Um, and then any health benefits, I think is just a, an addition. This concept of food as medicine has been around since the beginning of time, but somewhere along the way, the modern world seems to have come, become disconnected from this way of thinking. So we've developed so many different types of medications, painkillers, steroids, vaccinations, antibiotics, and many of these I'm sure are essential, but we've moved towards a much more clinical way um, of looking at medicine. However, are we now pivoting again and returning to the idea that food, plants and nature really do hold the keys to good health? Why do you think that we're now going back to looking at food as medicine? It's a really interesting question. And I think it's a topic that comes up a lot amongst my medical colleagues, particularly those who are interested in lifestyle medicine. And I believe that around 50 or 60 years ago, 
there was a renaissance within medicine. You know, we we started using antibiotics. We saw the incredible impact of antimicrobials and how we rid ourselves of infections that would otherwise be a death sentence mm. in a lot of people. Sanitation obviously has a role. Vaccination has a role. Um, a whole bunch of other things. But medicine was really held as this huge futuristic technology that would enable us to live the healthiest life and that's where i think there was a general sort of consensus that what the doctor does and what healthcare provides us with modern healthcare can be absolutely phenomenal and i think uh the balance of that and just how much um trust and uh effort we put into to healthcare that the balance of that has shifted now that we're witnessing a rise of different sorts of diseases so chronic lifestyle related diseases those like high blood pressure cardiovascular disease uh, fueled by an industry that is unfortunately related to f- big food manufacturers is now overpowering what healthcare can provide mm. and the the solutions that we've traditionally held in the form of a pill and the form of quick fixes almost don't apply to this new generation of chronic illness and unfortunately because of our obesogenic environment and something that i coined called the psychogenic environment which is an environment that predisposes us to a lot of psychological issues unfortunately it's just something that requires much more of a holistic and balanced perspective than just asking for a pill i think also we and i like to use this term homeostasis quite a bit it's basically the the process by which organisms maintain equilibrium and i think it's never black or white there's always like a combination of two things i use pharmaceuticals not personally every day but obviously with with patients but i also give them the added benefit of lifestyle advice and there is so much that we can use each other as complements mm. rather than one or the other and i think you know we like to make things black and white but actually it's really about balance it's really about this homeostatic sort of uh, concept yeah i think that's really important actually that you mentioned that because what i would never want for people to think is that as you said it's not they're not mutually exclusive it's not one without the other they both can benefit each other because of course there are conditions that require for you to take a daily medication for some people maybe more than one and it's not to say that I know that I think there's quite you know extremes within media and within documentaries that will say you know look at this person they were taking these tablets then they changed their diet they threw their tablets in the bin and I think that can also be very irresponsible because yeah if you need a medication um, you know daily Mm. I'm sure changing your diet can have a huge impact but it might not necessarily mean that you're going to be able to just you know rid yourself of your prescription you know it might be kind of dangerous for you to do that right exactly yeah and that's why I think initially when I came up with the doctor's kitchen I was quite worried that people would just think it's a doctor and he's throwing away medications in, mm. in the way of like it, what in, in uh, by replacing them with fruits and vegetables which and and I can understand that it sounds almost paradoxical the doctor's kitchen he's a doctor isn't he meant to be peddling drugs and he's doing stuff in the kitchen that doesn't sound like it should be together but it is mm. and we love paradoxes and I think the doctor's kitchen is really a great metaphor just those three words for what I do and what I believe because I think a lot of people can be helped by both systems mm. by both conventional and uh, traditional medicine for want of a better word um, and I think overall in the future maybe in the next five ten years even if I am successful with culinary medicine and all the other stuff that I'm, I'm doing that it will just be labeled medicine yeah it's just good medicine <laughs> yeah. and it's really interesting as well going back to what you said about 50 60 years ago with the with the medicine and the industry because 
you know, I feel like with the older generations in my family, they definitely have this kind of conditioning and this respect for doctors and they trust the information that they are told without questioning it. They, they trust it blindly because if a doctor tells you something, the, it's correct, 100%, the GP said. You know, and that comes down to everything from take this tablet to, you know, vaccinations to flu jabs to anything. If it's NHS and the GP says it, they take it as gospel. But I think the younger generation and people that I see are kind of taking more responsibility perhaps for their own health and they might be doing more research into alternative treatments and into looking at their lifestyle, looking at their diet. They might be more reluctant to take antibiotics or to get vaccinations. And I don't know what you think about this. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? You know, are we all getting a bit carried away with relying too much on the internet and, you know, Googling things and getting our own medical advice and perhaps just looking at our favorite bloggers recommendation, (laughs) you know, when really, you know, as you said, do we need that balance somewhere it's a really good question i think what we're witnessing is the democratization of information via the internet and the internet is a very powerful thing and i think while some people would heed warning in totality and that you know you shouldn't listen to anything you you come across on the internet without putting past your doctor first i think yes that there are some sensible things actually you can glean from the internet i using myself as an example have learned a ton of things by using an analytical critical approach from the internet however i'm very aware that people who don't have such skills can be lured towards things that can be unsafe for Mm. a lot of people Mm. So again, it comes down to balance of where we get the information from and knowing who to trust and where and, and, and how to get this information. What The other thing I think is really important to know is the concept of science, really, and the skepticism and the challenges are things that we need to embrace as scientists. You know, when I'm challenged by someone who doesn't believe what I'm suggesting or pre- prescribing, it it doesn't infuriate me it makes me a lot more open-minded and i think that's a perspective that a lot of doctors need to take and traditionally you were saying you know the older generations just believe anything that doctors said well you know whilst i appreciate that's that's great because back then they didn't know anywhere else to get information now it pushes us as doctors to look else outside Mm. beyond the sources that are just um, given to us at medical school even as doctors I think we need to embrace challenges from our patients mm. because it does make us more open-minded and it's not just a case of believing everything that we're spoon-fed from medical school in fact on the first day of medical school I remember uh, being told that 50% of what we were going to be taught over the next five six years is going to be incorrect by the end of it because it changes constantly it changes constantly and the prevailing scientific bias can change it doesn't change often doesn't change by much but it does change what we believed uh 20 years ago about fat for example and demonizing all types of fats completely changed Mm. and the same way you know the medications that we used to prescribe uh for years and years now completely revolutionized and the way i think we're going to be treating patients in the future is definitely going to uh, involve a lot more holistic medicine or lifestyle medicine or call it whatever you want it's going to be including a lot of lifestyle practices and food as medicine because we are embracing the challenges that we're seeing you know i think one of the reasons uh, that a lot more people are joining um, the conversation is because the patients are demanding more than a quick pharmaceutical fix and that may be born out of some unsavory articles that they've read about on the 
internet and mm. not everyone has the best intentions you know there's a huge supplement industry out there that's capitalizing on people's fears of being micronutrient deficient or that they're at risk for environmental pollutants but at the same time it, we have to be uh, a lot more sort of aware of the different sorts of things that are going on in our environment. And I think we're not taught that medical school and it's a constant learning process. So by virtue of being a scientist, we have to embrace skepticism. Yeah, I love that. I'm, that. I think that's really, really powerful. I hope that people are really hearing what you're saying and listening to that. And I think that that's important, as you said, for people who are at medical school or who are doctors, because I think maybe it's more of an old school thing, as I was saying, with the generation, but also with the doctors as well. You know, if you do go to your GP and, you know, they, I guess they don't know you they don't know your history they might not know your lifestyle habits obviously they have a limited amount of time you know working in the NHS as I said I have friends who work in the NHS have so much respect for you all because it's incredibly you know demanding it's such long hours it's so hard for them especially in a general practice for somebody to walk in you have 10 minutes you've got you know a baby with a rash then you've got an old lady with a sore knee then you've got a man with a cough and it's like they don't have that much time and I think actually if we can take responsibility and even go in with more information that's like this is the you know like you said about keeping a journal keeping a journal of your symptoms or Mm. a journal of you know when you felt that or what your what foods you're eating or whatever might actually help the doctor to help you yeah exactly and i think it's it's a really good point you raised there because i don't think a lot of people recognize just how many people we see per day so when i'm doing a full day of clinic you know i'll be seeing upwards of 40 patients a day which is unprecedented uh, in, in all sort of specialties actually a gpc the most because we are frontline clinicians and you're right it can be the old person with a cough or the baby with a rash and when we're looking at that patient the first thing I'm thinking of is the red flag. Has this is this cough lung cancer mm. or is that rash meningitis or have I just let a chest pain go that could be cardiac? You know, and, and uh, there's so many other things and this is why I run late all, all the time because <laughs> on top of that, <laughs> on top of just like making sure it's nothing serious, I need to factor in the lifestyle stuff. How am I going to promote health as well as prevent disease? And I think those are things that, you know, a lot of people struggle with to, to kind of understand the concept and the demands that we're under as clinicians. So yeah. yes, creating a culture that embraces the um, medicinal effects of eating well will certainly lessen the burden on the NHS and healthcare systems globally, which is why I'm so passionate about this because what I believe and, and the thing that I believe that a lot of people do not believe is the key to health and the key to reversing this huge, huge um, overburdened system is food. It all comes down to food. I really agree with you. So talk to us about culinary medicine. So culinary medicine is your course. um, And do you think that this could become a part of future education for medics? Yeah. So I'm really pleased to say that it kind of already has. Um, In a very small way, we've kind of like we've we've lit the first candle but we have a long way to go like we have a bonfire to create here <laughs> so uh coloring medicine like you like you put it is where we teach medical students and doctors uh clinical nutrition as well as the practical skills of how to cook and this is a concept that's actually come out of america of all places about seven years ago it was a medical school called tulane and they started uh, a culinary medicine course where they taught their medical students as an optional elective alongside dietetic students in a culinary school kitchen fit for purpose because uh, they had a benefactor who gave them like i think it was like quarter of a million pounds uh, quarter of a million dollars and that course became so popular that it's now part of compulsory medical education there and 40 other medical schools in the US, which in context is around a quarter of all medical schools in the US. Wow. 
in the UK, we are really far behind. We're behind, yeah. But in summer of this year in Bristol, we ran the first culinary medicine course. It was four weeks of intense training where two days a week we got them in the kitchen. We got 10 students in the kitchen cooking recipes from scratch. We had a dietitian there who's registered with BDA. We had a, a culinary chef in the community kitchen teaching the recipes as well as the skepticism around the subject. How we fit this information in the context of a small, uh, like time-limited consultation in a hospital, in a community, or even in GP clinics. As well as uh, putting them into health clinics and actually uh, getting them to speak to patients directly and asking them about what prevents them from getting fruits and veggies on their plates. Is it cost? Is it time? Is it lack of education? Is it all these different things? And these guys guys honestly are the first cohort of the new generation of doctors or future doctors that are going to be confident to talk about clinical nutrition to talk about food and medicine with their patients and it's about expanding and scaling that across all 32 medical schools in the uk as well as providing that information and that educational experience to the current qualified doctors who are interested in lifestyle medicine but also those who are skeptical as well yeah that's really powerful this congratulations because you know it sounds absolutely amazing and i think that the two together you know being delivered that information from a qualified doctor from your gp i do think carries so much more weight because personally i think within my own life you know relationships within my own family i know there's people who i you know i want to see them change their lifestyle habits i want them to improve their lifestyle habits but i think often when it comes from me they think oh adrienne you know you're you run marathons and you don't eat this and they think that i'm like extreme you know and i'm trying to kind of i think coming from me it's not you know they need to hear it from somebody else that it's not an extreme you don't have to run a marathon you don't have to be plant-based you don't have to you know completely give up i don't know caffeine or alcohol or whatever but i do think that as you said just kind of having a skeptical mind that completely eliminates your diet and your lifestyle so if you have a headache oh it's nothing to do with that or if you have i don't know um constant you know stomach issues and digestive issues it's like oh well i just have ibs or i just have this heartburn all the time and just accepting that well i can just take a remy or whatever it's called or you know like you said the pill Mm. instead of going well actually what's causing that and can i change it myself through diet i think this is just super super powerful i really hope people can take some of this um not from not just from today from this episode but you know moving forward in the future in their own lives yeah Yeah. and it's interesting the the things that you've just noted there ibs um uh gastritis uh high blood pressure you know all these things are in the guidelines so the nice institute the national institute of clinical excellence guidelines uh we we are always taught to consider diet and lifestyle in all those conditions however if you're not taught in medical school if you're not taught at postgraduate level the first thing that we're going to jump to really is going to be a pharmaceutical option and you put your, your clinicians in a time-restricted environment, of course you're going to reach for the, the pharmaceutical option. Of course you're going to reach for this pre- prescription pad. So really, it's about making doctors more nutrition literate without having to use the nutritional science speak. Because I don't speak to my patients about carbohydrate ratios or specific phytochemicals. I speak to them about food. Because people can relate to food. If I say, you know, get some more beets and peas and asparagus in your diet, they're in season at the moment, they're going to understand that. They're going to go to whatever the supermarket is and they're going to use a recipe. Whereas if I say, oh, you know what, you need to uh, reduce your carbohydrate ratio, make sure you're having not as many saturated fats and remove all trans fats from your diet. 
they're going, they're not going to know what I'm talking about, especially yeah. when we talk about calorie counting as well. And that's yeah. what, and this, this myopic focus on things like calories and energy balance, you know, it, it, it's, it's frustrating for a lot of people because it doesn't actually give them actionable tips. It doesn't give them actual advice about how they can improve their diet using their plates. Yeah. And this is something that we, we speak about in the course at the moment. So my, my, my sort of aspiration is to create culinary medicine as the standard in all medical education so we can talk confidently about nutrition, but also how we can actually extrapolate that to them teaching their patients about how they can use food and medicine. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting the Power Hour podcast. I cannot wait to get back in the studio and start recording new episodes with new guests very soon. But in the meantime, I am head down working hard on the Power Hour book. The book is out at the end of this year, but it is already available for pre-order at Waterstones and Amazon.com. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and have a fantastic week. See ya. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.